This is the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, a podcast brought to you by two physical therapists devoted to helping physical therapists and other healthcare providers become better educators to patients, students, the community, and each other by interviewing prominent and passionate people within the realms of healthcare and education. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast is intended literally for educational and entertainment purposes only. No clinical decision-making should be based on only one source, and therefore this podcast should not be used as personal medical advice. While care has been taken to ensure accuracy, occasionally mistakes and factual errors can be present, as we are only human. This is our journey on the road to becoming better educators, so get ready with your pen and paper as class is about to begin. Welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. My name is Brandon Pollan, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, F. Scott Fiel. And on today's episode, we welcome Justin Dunaway and Morgan Denny to talk about manipulation, how to teach it, and also about education about other healthcare providers in foreign countries. Now, Justin graduated from Youngstown State University DPT program, and throughout his career, he served as a PT, Director of Continuing Education, Clinical Director, and he served as a member of the Executive Board of the Arizona Physical Therapy Association. He is also a faculty member for the Institute of Clinical Excellence devoted to developing PT version 2.0, teaching the Total Spine Thrust Manipulation course and the upcoming Persistent Pain Comprehensive course. And Morgan Denny received her Doctorate of Physical Therapy from the University of Montana in 2006, and she has focused her work in outpatient orthopedic setting, addressing conditions and people of all sorts both in the U.S. and around the globe. She began traveling to Haiti to provide rehabilitative therapy in 2013 and found a passion in addressing the needs in this country. Now, Justin and Morgan are the founders of Stand Haiti Project, in which they are working to establish permanent access to orthopedic rehabilitative services in Haiti through direct patient care and clinical training of its citizens. Thank you guys both so much for your incredible service and dedication to the profession and to the lives of so many patients and clinicians. It's such an honor to have you guys on the show. Is there anything you'd like our audience to know about you that we might have left out from the introduction? Nah, you guys did a great job. That sounds pretty solid. I was actually reminded of a few things I forgot about myself. <laughs> well, glad we could bring back some old memories. So, Justin, uh, you teach a manipulation course, right? And uh, with manipulation being a relatively difficult psychomotor skill that requires some practice and refinement, could you maybe discuss how you first started with manipulation and how you progressed and modified your skills to where they are now? Uh, maybe even discussing some of the struggles that you faced along the way? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I was fortunate enough to go to a, um, a school where we were taught a handful of manipulation techniques as part of the curriculum. But it was taught in the, the second year advanced spine piece. And they were kind of your, your standard single plane end range progression of grade four to grade five manipulations. But that was kind of what I was taught. And then um, when I got out into doing my, my clinical rotations, you know, my CIs didn't know how to manipulate. So then I couldn't. So then go back to school. And then by the time I graduated and got my license, it had been about a year since I'd actually manipulated anything. And I felt like this was important. It was a powerful skill, but I was really rusty. So I just jumped into some con ed and started chasing it down. So then I, I learned some new techniques. But I think the, the biggest thing at, at learning a difficult psychomotor skill, whether it's manipulation or anything, it's just through dedication to focused repetition of trying to develop each of the nuances of the skill. Awesome, for sure. And Justin, did you do it through the Dunning Institute? Yes, that's that's where I started. 
Okay, very cool. No, I totally agree with you, Justin, in terms of, you know, really working on practice makes perfect, because at least from taking courses and stuff, I can't tell you how many times afterwards I failed, you know, how to do the manipulation. But, you know, after learning and reflecting and repeating it, you know, you finally start to figure things out here and there. So that's awesome. And I totally agree with you on that. There's only two spots where you actually fail. And the first one is when you stop trying because it's just too hard or scary or whatever. And then the second time you fail is is when you think you've actually got it. Yeah, good point. So guys, in your opinions, what qualities distinguish a novice manipulator from an expert manipulator? Well, I think that it kind of bleeds in. That's that's perfect to my next point. It's um, I think in general, when you know, when I train a lot of people in this, and I think that the the people that I feel like are novice and kind of stuck in that novice are the ones that put their hands on somebody, made some sounds, and are like, "Yeah, I got this thing." And the expert manipulators are really the people that that truly believe that they don't have it, that no matter how fast they get, no matter how controlled their forces are, there's still room to improve. There's still room to develop the psychomotor skill. So the experts don't believe they have it yet. They're still working to improve. Honestly, the other side of it is if you are afraid of manipulation, no matter what course you've taken, you will never refine your skill. And the biggest aspect is you won't be able to use it on all the appropriate patients you have, and you'll never have enough repetitions. Like Justin was saying, it's like you have to do it a lot of times. You have to try it out on different patients that seem appropriate in order to learn like exactly what piece of that works out with patient care. And if you're afraid of manipulation, if it's something that you're still shying away from, even though you've taken the course and you've learned all the safety aspects behind it, like your hands are never comfortable. And I think I've seen a lot of people who, no matter what they say, when they practice, as opposed to in a con ed class, but when they're in the clinic, they just don't actually use it because they are innately afraid. And I think getting over that fear and understanding the research and the safety behind it and picking which patient is appropriate is so, so important. Yeah, that's a good point, Morgan. I think that just knowing the appropriate patients and feeling comfortable with that decision is really half the battle. After that, it's just like you said, getting your hands right and performing the manipulation. That being said, which manipulation techniques do you guys feel are the most difficult for you even to this point? And um, what strategies have you found to really hone your skills in on those difficult manipulations? I would say if, if I had to pick, if I would have to pick the two, if we're talking spine, right? Are we talking spine? <laughs> Yeah, spine versus extremities. What you got? Yeah, I would I would say in the spine. Well, I guess the answer is the same for the extre. Or the reason the answer is the same in the extremities is this. You know, in the spine, I would say the OA joint and the SI joint. And honestly, it's probably because of the patients that walk through the door. That's least likely that those are my targets. So I've just got significantly less repetitions hitting an OA joint or an SI joint than I do L4, L5 or Atlas or CT junction. And I would say, honestly, I am the least or I was, I guess I would say, the least confident with the TLJ up until probably a year ago. And the biggest factor was figuring out which detail I was the worst at and just knowing that it existed. And then once I kind of found that and refined my technique and could kind of transfer my force correctly, everything was magic. But before that, until just kind of like practicing, learning, practicing, learning, listening and deciding which pieces I sucked at, like that's when it got good. Yeah. So kind of finding your faults first and then working on those. Yeah. There's always two things that you could have done better. If I give you three, then that's too many. And if I if I give you one, I'm just being lazy. There's always two things you could have done better. And then just be okay with that and working on it. Awesome. Yeah, no, for sure. And Justin, I totally agree with what you said. I mean, I haven't done really much OA, but 
SIJ continues to be one of my weakest because I have seen like one patient in the past six months that was appropriate for it. So I agree the window of practice on that one is relatively low, at least clinically. Mm -hmm. All psychomotor skills develop through focused repetition. So you've, you've got to have the repetition. Oh, no, totally for sure. And that kind of leads in perfectly to if someone took a manipulation course or, you know, any CEU for that matter, what are some of the most important things that they should do when they return to the clinic to get the most out of the course? I think number one is you've got to manipulate stuff. <laughs> you've got to be okay getting your hands on patients through the door. And I know I know Monday morning at 9 a.m. when Doris walks in and she's inappropriate for a cervical manipulation and it's the first time you've done it on a patient, your hands are going to shake a little bit. And they're going to get a little sweaty and it's okay. You're going to stumble on your words a bit and that's fine, but you've got to get through that barrier and do it. I think being able to, to get your fear out by putting your hands on patients. But then, you know, grab your techs, grab your other therapists, grab the people around you and practice a bit. Start to get that repetition and, and realize that you can get repetition when ways that you don't necessarily need a patient. Like you've got to have, you've got to have the patient contacts. But, you know, any athlete will tell you that motor imagery, and we've read the research, you know, basketball players are practicing their free throw all day in their mind. You know, you should be you should be going through the steps in your head. You should be going through the steps with your hands without a head in it. You know, you need to just practice, practice, practice in lots of different ways. The other thing that I would say is if you take a course and you have that manual in your hand, and I know most people have digital copies these days, but I'm showing my age. Anyway, if you have that manual or some access to it in your hand, it helps you to be ready. I mean, I know that, you know, you're going to come across patients that you're not sure about, like you don't remember exactly which aspects made a patient appropriate or what things you needed to ask them to make sure nothing bigger was going on. But if you've got the information right in front of you, you're there. Like you don't have to wait until week two, your next visit. The other side of it is that really shows your patient that you're out there, you're learning, you're progressing your treatment styles. You're not just a stagnant PT who hasn't learned anything. And I think that that shows a lot and that gives them confidence also in the fact that you're making sure that what you're doing is appropriate. And then just trying the skill, like Justin was saying, just got to try it. Yeah. On the front end of developing my manipulation skills, we, there's there was a couple of us in our clinic that took courses together. So we had people around us to, again, you know, there's a huge difference between repetition and focused repetition. And I can put my hands on a patient and fumble through a technique and fumble through a technique and fumble through a technique. But if I don't have somebody there to say, hey, you know, if you did A and B differently, it'd be a little cleaner, right? So, so you need to have a way to focus your repetition. We created a study group. We found um, a bunch of clinicians in town that, that took similar courses and we met once a month and, and put our hands on each other and, and used each other's eyes to focus our repetition. Yeah, true story. There's nothing like another person's eyeballs looking at what you're doing who has the same training as you do to really give you honest feedback. Because when you've done something, let's say a million times to be really, really giving, when you've done something a million times, you're just in your motor pattern. And it's really hard for you to see the discrepancy between what you're doing and what you should be doing. And to really refine and get better, it's really helpful to have somebody else watch you, dictate where your body should be, help you with your stance position, like look at your hands and how quick one is moving versus the other. Like all that stuff's really helpful. 
Yeah, that's a good point, guys. And you really, I mean, you were fortunate to have that kind of group that met up, you know, and had other clinicians in there doing the same thing. I'm kind of out on an island on my own little clinic. So when when I'm practicing, I'm very fortunate that a lot of my front desk people need work on their necks and backs. So I'm able to get them in and practice on them pretty frequently, too, when I'm not seeing patients. So I have a little bit of backup, but it would be really nice to get some extra eyes on me as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. I used to be, I'm going to air quote this a bit. Uh, a triathlete. <laughs> I, I I was a halfway decent runner, but I got into some triathlons for some, for fun and I was a terrible swimmer. And I got a swim coach to help me. I was bad enough that I needed somebody to help me learn how to get from one side to the other. You didn't drown, babe. I know. I had a coach. Um, but it was always, you go down a lane and, and, and this, this lap, you're going to work on breathing. This lap, you're going to work on bringing your thumb up your side. This, this lap, you're going to work on rotation. So when you're thinking about your manipulations, you know, this manipulation, I'm going to really work on arresting my force at the end. This one, I'm going to really focus on holding my side bend and side shift as I thrust. This one's I'm really going to work on speed. So it's about picking a thing that you're going to work on, getting some good repetitions on that one piece. And when you try to focus on everything at the same time, it all kind of falls apart, especially in the beginning. Mm-hmm. I'd like to uh, kind of shift focus a little bit here and go a different direction. Uh, do you guys think that we should, as a profession, shift some of our clinical focus away from the skills component of clinical care and more about maybe good communication with the patient? Is that something that we should be focusing on moving forward? They're all important, right? Communication is huge. It's, it is, you know, I, I say it over and over again. Beliefs and expectations are the foundation that outcomes are built on. And if we don't understand beliefs and expectations, then it's really hard to drive forward. And the only way that we can understand where our patient is is through good communication. But it's not an or, right? We have to have good hand skills. We have to have a handful of different things that we can throw to patients so that when their beliefs and expectations don't align with my one treatment, I've got another treatment that I can do that does fit within the space they're going to let me work. So I want to say yes, but we can't let the pendulum swing away from the hands-on component far enough that we forget how to get our hands on our patients appropriately and, and skillfully. Here, here. Yeah, I think that that's that is the exact response that people need to hear because I think we get really focused on what the new cool thing is and we forget about all the other skills we have. And I think to say we need to shift our focus to the communication versus the skills is just the wrong answer. Like Justin said, it's not an or, it's an and. You know, it's like, do more PTs need training in A versus B? Sure, but then some of them need more training in B versus A. If you become a psychologist, you're not a physical therapist. You know, it's like having aspects of psychology and physical therapy is absolutely important, but you can't be one or the other. Like you have to blend, you have to meld, you have to be what each patient needs. And some patients, they don't need any fancy communication. They need some manual therapy and some exercise. And other patients, they need a lot of talking. But there's no way to know which patient that is until they step in your office and you say hello. So there's, in my mind, there's no reason to say we have to focus one way or the other. Like, you just have to learn it all, honestly. Even as that sounds daunting. Oh, well, too bad. (laughs) (laughs) I think our parents were really smart when they said, don't put all your eggs in one basket. And I think think it's... it's, Oh, you and your chicken analogies. That's appropriate. As as new stuff starts to come out, we really want to throw all of our stuff in one thing and forget about everything else. And let's let's get our eggs in a couple baskets because when you drop one, you still have some other things that you can jump in on. Yeah, kind of a jack-of-all-trades scenario. 
Yeah, you can still be master of some, though. I think that's that's the problem with that phrase. It shouldn't be jack of all trades, master of none. It should be jack of all trades, master of some. Well put. Well put. So, guys, I know there's been a lot of education from a lot of different angles on how to educate the population and clinicians about, you know, the fact that manipulation is safe. But, you know, in your guys' experience, what do you guys feel has been the most effective way to educate the population and other clinicians about the safety of manipulation? You know, it's a tough question because... I feel I feel torn on that one because I I'm not entirely sure we've been wildly successful on the whole because every time you know once a year there's an article that comes out and then every Twitter feed and every um, every Facebook feed is is talking about how this is dangerous and we should abandon it and we've got so much literature on the risk on the stress and strain on all the mechanics that happen during a well-performed manipulation and, and how safe this is. And we've got all the awesome work by Alan Taylor and Roger Carey and, and Lucy Thomas and, and Herzog and all the stuff out there. There's so much information that the safety manipulation shouldn't be even really a, a conversation anymore. It, it should be something that, that we learn enough about. And we got to, I mean, you really have to understand your red flag stuff, your risk factors, You've got to really understand your pain pattern, signs and symptoms with uh, internal carotid artery and vertebral artery, um, pre-ischemic pre and ischemic signs and symptoms. But but it's such a safe technique when done well. Um, we put way too much, what, what, we put way too much effort into defending a thing that's that's 500,000 times safer than, than surgery and 150,000 times safer than taking over-the-counter ibuprofen. And if you look at the study that just came out by um, Louis recently, what it shows us is that cervical manipulation is underutilized compared to everything else because we're afraid of it. And we're afraid of it for no real good reason. So I I, I wish I could say that A, B, and C are the effective ways of teaching it. I think when you come to a course, we spend like 90 minutes on trying to dispel all this information and, and show you how to do it safely. But on a whole, I, I think that we've kind of, the profession has kind of dropped the ball on, on making people realize how not risky this is. And I mean, outside of the profession, honestly, a lot of it's a social construct. I mean, you're going to have patients that walk in the clinic and you, you know, are like, hey, we're going to do this thing. I'm going to stretch your neck. You might hear some clicks and pops and they are overjoyed. Like they know they want you to crack the thing. They're not scared at all. And then you have patients who are on the other side of the coin, like Justin was talking about, who've seen stuff about the one out of 60 however many million people one, one in six million yeah one in six million see i couldn't remember my zeros but anyway who have <laughs> actually had an adverse event from manipulation and those people will focus on that one thing because it's all they know but i think a little bit of patient education a little bit of time a little talking the right way with the person you know it's like people can come around to good ideas they just need the right information and there's so much misinformation in the world not just in our profession that it can be difficult for people sometimes to decide who to trust and when to trust them. So I think honestly, whether it's patient or clinician, just working on the idea of kind of giving them information, giving them actual safety facts and numbers can be really, really helpful. And honestly, from the clinician standpoint, every PT who is scared of manipulation, if they just have it done to them, generally comes around because, okay, so for example, the previous weekend we were in Seattle and teaching manipulation and there was a woman in this course who had never had her neck manipulated, had been in car accidents and I did one side and then Justin did the other side and I cannot tell you probably the next hour was spent her turning her head and saying how amazing she felt 
like like we had switched topics and she still kept coming back to it. And I think that part of it is just this misrepresented fear of what manipulation is going to feel like or going to do to you. And once you actually know what the effects are personally, it helps you to change your judgment about what you're going to do to a patient. I'd like to put you guys on the spot here a little bit. Let's say the appropriate patient walks into your clinic uh, and they are ready for a manipulation. Can you guys go ahead and kind of role play a little bit and give us a little bit of patient education and how you would verbally prime them to be ready to have the manipulation done to them? Absolutely. So first of all, I, I, I totally de-escalate it, right? Because I don't want it to be this this big thing, right? So so it's literally like, yeah, you know, I've, I've gone through the eval, they're appropriate. I've got them laying supine on the table. I'm doing a little bit of soft tissue to their neck. I'm pushing on some of the, I'm doing a little bit of transverse glides through the cervical spine. And then all I say is, okay, cool. So what I'm feeling here is that this just feels a little bit stiff, not moving great. I would love to get in here and just give you a quick stretch. So what I'm going to do is put your head in a position and move it from here to here. And I actually nice and gently move their head through a small arc of motion. I'm just going to move it from here to here, nice and quick and give you a nice little quick stretch and you may or may not feel some pops and clicks and if you or if you do you know don't be startled it makes some sounds totally normal and when you sit up you're likely going to feel better that's it and it, and then i say is that cool and they say sure go for it and that's what i do and that was cool. probably the really long version i bet in the clinic justin does about 50 percent of that yeah but i definitely i definitely tell him i'm gonna move it it might make some sounds. I don't tell them that I'm going to pop their neck because I don't want to feed forward an expectation that that has to happen for it to be successful. And that's a whole other topic. But all I'm going to say is I'm going to move it. It may make some sounds and you're going to feel better when I'm done because I do want to feed forward the idea that this treatment will be beneficial. Expectations are everything. For sure. And what if you guys found that, say you're going through that, you're kind of doing your priming, you do the technique and you got the cavitation, but then you get up and the patient doesn't feel any different. How do you handle it then? I think that it, it varies by the patient. So one of the biggest things to tell your patient is it's okay. Like, you know, check your movement, see if you're moving better. You know, this is a normal response to manipulation. We're going to test this treatment and see how you feel. You know, if they don't have an instant response, it's not the end of the world. Like a lot of symptoms take a minute to go away and that's fine. And by a minute, I'm having Portland speak. And what I mean is a little bit longer than a short time. But it, ta it takes a minute, you know, so let them move around, let them go into the gym, like load those segments, load that joint, get them doing some active movement and then see how they feel. You know, it's like if I bang my knee into a table or if I have an active or chronic inflammatory process and somebody manips something, it doesn't instantly feel better, but that's okay. Like what we want is progress overall. And as long as you do this in a safe way on patients, just encouraging them and telling them like, that's okay. Like that's normal. Like it's okay not to feel better directly after. And then we're going to load it. We're going to do some exercise. We're going to do some treatments that promote other aspects like soft tissue, et cetera, et cetera, whatever you want to do, and then just see how they feel. And I think that patients really respect the idea that you're looking for them to feel better, but it doesn't have to be right this second. And another thing you'll see is, you know, a lot of times patients come in and say they've got, they've got 65 because I've got my magic goni and I'm measuring everything every time. No wow, worries. that's a lie. Yeah. <laughs> so they've got 65 degrees <laughs> in the left and we do some manipulation in their cervical spine and their thoracic spine because that would be what would be indicated if there was no contraindications, blah, blah, blah. And then and they've got 65 degrees of rotation to the left with pain and then you manipulate them and now they're at 75 degrees to the left with the same amount of pain. A lot of times what happens in the patients will... will Will come up and they'll sit up and they'll say, nope, still hurts the same. And be like, but Doris, 
your neck is moving so much further, which is great because when we take it to the very end where you're comfortable, you're going to have the same pain, but we push that further and further and further. Now, like Morgan said, let's go out to the gym and do some exercises and get things moving better. And we'll do a little bit of loading. We'll do a little cardio and then we're going to recheck it because what we need to show is that we need to show some change, right? And I know that study just came out that said within session change doesn't seem to correlate with long-term outcomes, but I guarantee you within session change helps you get buy-in. Buy-in gets your long-term outcomes. So I get your neck moving a little bit better and it moves good. And, and Doris is like, okay, fine. Yeah, it still hurts, but it moves a little better. I get it. And we go out in the gym and we we pick up some weights, we get your heart rate up, we get you moving, and then we move you again, and it moves a little bit better. Because I guarantee you, if you can get the heart rate up and hold it for 15, 20 minutes up, you pick some weights up, you fire some muscles, you get some joints moving, you will see within session change. And the key isn't necessarily exactly what I'm doing with my hands at the gym. The key is showing your patient that their body is ready to make a change. And that's how you get the buy-in from the home exercise stuff. Awesome. No, I think that's a good point. I think it's a good clarification too, you know, when you're doing the technique, you know, with kind of prepping to say, you know, we're looking for some change. It just may not be directly after. So I think that's a fantastic point and that's a good takeaway. So with that being said, guys, kind of with, you know, how you guys have been teaching manipulation, what strategies have you guys found to be the most effective with teaching the performance of manipulation? And also what strategies have you found to be ineffective? Nice. Ineffective. <laughs> those are Interesting. Those are great questions. Well, yeah. that's good because uh, we've been doing this for a while now. Mm -hmm. We've had lots mm -hmm. of courses and there's definitely things mm -hmm. that don't work. I think, I think one of the keys that helps get people on board fastest is, you know, we start the lectures and we, we do some didactic stuff. And our first two labs aren't manipulation, right? Everybody comes in, they haven't met each other, nobody in the room's touched each other yet, and they, they, they haven't got comfortable with each other, and maybe they're nervous about manipulation. So you know, our first lab is some assessment stuff, you know, teaching people to get your hands on necks and do some PAs and, and do a neuro screen and do some tension limb tension testing and stuff like that. And one, that stuff is super important. You have to understand it. If you're going to be in the realm of treating head and neck pain, you've got to be really good at that stuff. But it's also nice to just a little bit of time getting your hands comfortable touching other people in the room that you've never met and just calming down because people are a little nervous about it. And then we hit the, the technique that people are most scared of first when we get to the manipulation stuff, right? We're going to go straight into the neck. And when we teach the neck manipulation, you know, there's, there's five or six different components that that go to the, the full technique. And we start and we just get you comfortable doing the first component and you rep that out. And then you step back and shake your hands out and then you put the first two components together and rep that out and shake your hands out. And, and we kind of build you up into it so that you've had multiple reps of each piece along the way before you do the whole thing. And then we step back, shake it out, clear our heads and then hit the whole thing. And I think over the last 20 some courses that we've done, that kind of progression on the front end has been the thing that really gets people to learn it is fast. So almost like a uh, building block, like a foundation, like a scaffolding. And then uh, as it builds and they get comfortable, you pull it down and let them go fly solo. Got it. And we do it. We do it like a step aerobics class, right? I'm, I'm standing in the middle of the room and I'm, I'm saying each step and then everybody in unison are doing each step together. And then we step through it. It's, it's, it's like Zumba, but with less, less awesome music. <laughs> I was going to say, Wait, do you wear a headband too? Yeah, totally. On good days. <laughs> I think, I think the other side of it. Just picture Richard Simmons. Yeah. That was my best Halloween costume. Anyway, I, I think another aspect that's important, especially when teaching any psychomotor skill, is give as few cues as possible to be effective. Because, and you know, it's like people will find this in the clinic when they're trying to teach a patient to do a single leg squat or do something different. It's like if you overwhelm a human 
with too many cues and too many new things that you want them to do, they'll fail. Like there's just too much to think about. So I think, you know, as as little as possible, as much as necessary is a huge aspect. So really walking through it in a five cues, and then let's go back and do very, very small amounts of refinement so that each individual person can kind of figure out where they're at. Because some people won't need a tiny, tiny little rotational shoulder movement, whatever it is, but other people will. And so being able to give those smaller cues and smaller amounts of instruction and then move on to the refinement with each individual, I think has been really helpful with manipulation. That's that's what I would say that that's perfect into the, um, the, the least effective thing to this is if I demonstrate a technique and it takes me 35 minutes to do the demonstration and I throw 17 different really specific things at you and then say, now go do that. It's not going to work. So what we do is we give you kind of the overview and then we run around the room and, and we get our hands on you. And every time, just like we said earlier, every time you do something, I'm going to give you two things to work on. And then after we take a few minutes and we, we watch the room practice, we pick two things that we see the room doing poorly on a whole. And then we bring everybody up, back up to the front and re-demonstrate with a focus on those two pieces, refinement one, and then we send everybody out to redo. And then we watch, and then you know we give you we give people individual two two cues, and then we pull them in for a second refinement. And that's kind of the key is if you overload them, if we give you five things to look at, or if I correct five different things that you did wrong, you don't remember any of them, and you don't focus on any of them. Yeah, you remember the last thing somebody said, and then you work on that, and that's it. So with manipulation, where you have all these levers that you set up and movements and ways to like get to a certain position to find the barrier, it's important to not overdo it because otherwise like people end up on the other side of the universe. It's crazy. Yeah, no, for sure. And, you know, another thing I like that you guys do is, you know, you guys offer, you know, people to come up to the front and demonstrate a specific technique to really get that overall good feedback from a bunch of different angles. And I think I found that's pretty helpful. Yeah, I think, you know, it's we, we try to do that and then... That's wildly helpful for for the people that want it. Because what we find is that in some classes, there, there's classes where people crave that. And then there's classes where, where you say, all right, somebody want to come up and demonstrate and, and it's crickets. And then it's like everybody's looking at the floor and their eyes are closed and they're like, don't pick me, don't pick me. <laughs> um, so the other thing that we love to do, and I know, Brandon, you've you've experienced this, is you know we, we, we crank up some tunes, we get the music going, everybody's feeling really good. And then we do our round robin, which is like just speed repetition where, where you shift from body to body to body. And, and we walk around the room and we yell a technique and then you do the technique and then you switch bodies and we say the next technique and you do it. And I think that's, it's fun, but I think that kind of the speed that we do it and, and having the music and having the stuff going along, what it does is it it, it kind of takes away from your ability to overthink. And, and then when, you, when you're thinking too much and trying too hard, your hands get slow and wonky because you're just so focused. But if we can kind of de-stress the situation and speed it up, you tend to, you know, it's like, it's like when you're training runners and, and you're looking at a, you're looking at an injured runner and they've got 17 different biomechanical things wrong with them. And, and you've got, you've got this knee collapse and this hip whip and all this stuff. And really the first thing that you should do is increase their cadence by 10%. And then when you speed their feet up, a lot of the stuff just cleans up on its own. Cool. Yeah, totally. I, I think that, that when you are, I mean, when Justin said, when you're training a runner, in my mind, I was thinking the exact same thing. I was like, ah, how dare you steal my point? But if you, you're training a patient and you give them a million cues, if you're trying to like change all this stuff, the best thing to do is distract them, have them focus on something external. Like 
one of my favorite running cues is if someone is crossing the midline with their feet when they're running, like have them go to a track. Don't let their feet cross the line. Have them look at something completely different. It's called the Johnny Cash. Don't cross the line. Like, come on. Or walk the line. Run the line. Anyway, <laughs> maybe that's a little outside the box, but all the same. It's good to give people these external cues and get them moving fast and repetitively because if you can just kind of sink that in, it just becomes your motor pattern and you got it. Manipulation and rehabbing the injured runner. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I am failing at being focused. No, great, great points, guys. Great points. Thank you for attending class today, and we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast, on Instagram, HET Podcast, on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and the homepage, healthcareeducationtransformationpodcast.com. And for those of you following along in the syllabus, Extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.